Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Donna Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Benjamin Young. Dr. Young is the head of global medical directors for Vive Healthcare, a pharmaceutical company focused on advancements in research and development of new medicines for people living with HIV. Over his 25-year career, he's also coordinated evidence-informed public health and human rights HIV policies with the United Nations and the World Health Organization. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Young. Thank you, Jonna. It's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Could you first start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your interest in medicine? Sure. So as you said, I'm now the head of global medical directors for Vive Healthcare. We're a pharmaceutical company, discovery company, really the the merger of three companies, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, and Chianogi, really focused entirely on HIV. We're one of the rare companies that has a single disease area focus. But in terms of who I am and, and my interest in medicine, it started many, many years ago. I was, as an undergraduate, really undecided about what I wanted to do in life when I grew up. And in short, I wound up applying to an MD and PhD program, and that theme will probably reemerge later. In other words, I didn't really know if I wanted to be a clinical doctor or a researcher, so I was fortunate to land a scholarship in a joint doctorate program. And so I really honed my educational background in both basic science and in clinical medicine. And really the part of the story is that I've lived my life at the intersections of intellectual and professional domains whether it's clinical medicine and basic science or clinical medicine and public policy. And I think there's a lot of magic that happens in those areas. But in terms of medicine, you know, I was trained as an enzymologist, a biophysicist, and was interested in the evolution of enzymes. And evolution of enzymes is another fancy way of saying drug resistance. I happened to be interested at the time in the drug resistance in in cancer cells But then something happened in in the United States and around the world, and that was called AIDS. And you would have to have a heart of a lump of coal not to understand the human spectrum and burden of what it meant to live and die of AIDS, never mind the immense intellectual and academic opportunities to learn something about a virus that was causing huge disease burden. So I became an HIV specialist as part of a wave of medical scientists who saw this new pandemic arrive and wanting to do something about it. That's fantastic. I'm going to piggyback a little bit on, on your education and kind of what you spoke about. So in addition to your medical degree, I know you also have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. So I'm curious, how does that play out as far as this expertise that you've gained into the work that you're doing right now with HIV and, and you know, with the communities that you're, you're serving ultimately? Yeah, I mean, you know, what does biochemistry have to do with public policy, public health, and human rights, right? Yeah. The link might seem really obtuse, if not completely irrelevant. And in fact, lots of people say, you know, well, I went to graduate school for so many years and it's irrelevant. I like to think that that education is never irrelevant. And I said earlier, my PhD work was in really the basic mechanisms, the motors of enzymes, the things that are responsible for the exchanges of chemicals and information in, in living cells. That sounds really obtuse, but again, that in a way that leads to understanding about things like drugs and drug resistance. Literally what drew me into HIV medicine 
But it's also an exercise in understanding the connectivity between two seemingly unrelated fields. It's understanding that there is a, an important relationship between the knowledge and the academic endeavors around thinking about enzymes and viruses and simultaneously thinking about the burden that these viruses can cause to people, disease, communities, economies, and so on. And so it's, you know, there's both an understanding that leads me to have a knowledge about drugs and drug resistance on one hand, but I think at the broader sense, it's an understanding about how to be a translational person, to translate between one field and another and finding the areas where there is potential for synergy to either improve knowledge or to make the world a better place. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the things that I talk about often just in, in lots of different conversations that you're making me think about is that interdisciplinary, you know, team. We, we use that word a lot or then a multidisciplinary teamwork. And I think even in saying that as individuals, it's just something I'm thinking about, you know, when we acquire knowledge in different fields, it seems really invaluable to the work that we do, you know, as individuals, whether we're an MD, an, an RN, you know, a PA, whatever we're doing in healthcare and, and beyond that. So that's a really excellent point, you know, how you're bridging those things together. That's great. I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, your career addressing HIV. I want to talk more about that on a national and a global level. And if there are any, you know, highlights of that work, and if you can give us maybe your assessment on where you find and where you feel things stand right now with HIV in our country and, and outside of it. Well, thanks for that opportunity. I literally entered medical school the year that AIDS was first described. We didn't know HIV, you know, what HIV was. We couldn't spell HIV when I started medical school. And I didn't want to be, didn't think that I wanted to be an infectious disease doctor. But again, that both opportunity and need led to that pathway. My career has spanned what I call the, the, the pre-treatment era, before we had effective treatments for HIV, the first decade or so of care. The second decade was one of the earliest therapies for HIV. This is about 1995 to 2005, where we were just discovering the drugs, just discovering how to use them and how to begin to optimize both the drugs themselves as well as the combinations of therapies that we used. There was a, a next period where we were actually really tweaking and optimizing those to make those medicines more tolerable, more effective, and more cost-effective to deliver around the world. And now we're in a fourth decade of HIV therapies where we're talking about actually ending the epidemic. I mean, an amazing, unforeseen set of opportunities that represents really the, I think, the reason why we do all of this, at least for many of us, is to, is to make the world a better place, whether it's for one's community, one's country, or the, or the world. And so I, I have been very fortunate to have a career that has seen really the evolution of a new pandemic from its first description and a period, an era of terror and fear, a new era of discovery and where science and medical science really drove what we did. And now it's really a question of whether we have the, the will, community will, political will, financial will, to actually deliver those tools to save countless tens of millions of lives around the world. So you asked, you know, so what are the highlights? Well, boy, there's been a lot. And there's some low lights. The low lights were really watching and having people entrust their remaining years, days of life to you and then to shepherd them to their death. A horrible burden 
burden today that we can reflect on with COVID. But the joy comes from those early days in the middle 90s when we first learned that we could suppress using medications that were recently discovered that we could suppress people's virus to undetectable levels. Again, just a few years earlier, seemingly impossible. It was just dream state to think that we could suppress this virus. And then suddenly it happened. And it was every day you would come into the clinic hoping that you would see someone's new, you know, the lab reports, the RNA PCRs that were drawn in the lab just in the clinic a few days ago that said that this person's viral load was undetectable. That meant that that person had the, for the first time, perhaps in their HIV journey, the potential to live instead of die. Those moments are like indelibly etched in, in my emotional uh, memory. You know, we can go past that. I mean, there's some more specific, I helped individuals that in this new era have families. And there are a couple of babies, right? well, no, no longer babies, a couple of young children around the world whose name is Ben because I helped their parents plan for and have a, a healthy pregnancy. I mean, the joy in one's professional career from that is immense and, and indelible. I'll kind of transition to that last part of my career, though, which is, is more on the public health and human rights side. I was very fortunate to find myself working. It was appointed to the World Health Organization Treatment Guideline Panel. That panel is a group of bright and, and immensely dedicated women and men from around the world, 30 or 40 countries, who sit around a conference room in Geneva with all the best data and try to render recommendations for many, many countries around the world. And in 2015, we did something which I think is really important. Number one was, and probably most important for the first time, we recommended that everybody living with HIV in every country, rich or poor, black or white, get access to life-saving therapy. It seems almost stupid that that was even a point of conjecture, yeah. but in fact it was. And what it meant was overnight that many millions of people suddenly became eligible for therapy. Therapy that we now know saves lives, reverses disease, and protects health. And that to me is really the capstone of my public health career. And, and that was done out of a spirit that acknowledged that in wealthy countries that was already happening. That had been happening for years, yet in poor countries that wasn't. And that gap was a matter of life and death. And that gap in, in policy was a deficiency in human rights. In other words, poor people weren't getting treatments because they were poor and people living in wealthy countries got access to those things. That disparity was a really a, a violation of, of the trust of governments, but also a violation of human rights and the perspective of health. And we, we remedied that. And, and just a few years later, we went from eight countries recommending universal treatment to now well over 150 countries around the world. And that's an example of this, this amazing journey that you go from basic science and discovering viruses and discovering drugs, and then fully implementing that around the world, potentially, again, saving tens of millions of people's lives. Yeah, that's incredible. And the way that you know human rights overlap with this, this battle is really clear and I think makes a really good point about how these two things and the work that you do connect and the work that you do sounds amazing. I'm sitting here just thinking about your role and I'm curious, what's the everyday look like for Dr. Young and, and what your role is with Vive? Well, you know, again, it's, there's a, a bit of an interesting part of that story. I had spent much of the previous decade working as an international health activist in the nonprofit sector. The kind of place where 
you know, people literally did backflips upon learning that I had joined the private sector in a pharmaceutical company. But in fact, the link is, if you deconstruct it a bit, it, it makes a lot of sense. While in the nonprofit sector, you know, I had been one of the advocates for universal treatment. And a bit of the important segue there is that Veef Healthcare was the company that discovered really one of the cornerstone drugs to modern therapy for HIV. And during that period, that drug became part of the recommended first, second, and third line treatment for HIV or for people living with HIV all over the world. So suddenly here you have this drug company, a for-profit drug company that discovered this drug who had a, a medical affairs and and commercial team in high-income countries, as all drug companies do. And their product now was an essential part of treatment for people with HIV. The majority of those, the burden of the HIV epidemic actually occurs in middle and low-income countries around the world. So what do, you, what do you do about that? Well, you want to make sure that that drug actually makes it to the, as we say, the clinic at the end of the road, mm -hmm. at the countries where there is no company corporate presence, where there might not be a sales team or commercial team, where you have to come up with new partners to make sure that those drugs get there. And so in short, I was asked to join the company to help support the, those efforts. And that in part is the role of, a, of the global medical directors at Veeve. We work as ambassadors of the company, ambassadors of our medicines and public health initiatives. But I think of my job as really being twofold. It's both to represent the company, but also to be the eyes and ears of the company in those places and to bring that information back into the company, not just as an exercise in filling out an Excel spreadsheet, mm. but to, to actually advocate for the unmet needs, the un, sometimes the unnoticed needs of both communities and patients and their clinicians around the world. I think it's frankly, one of the best jobs I could ever imagine. In fact, you know, a few years ago, I couldn't imagine this job. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it means I'm talking to people, sometimes people from the company, and frequently people not in the company, both community members and medical professionals all over the world. This morning, I was on a call in the Asia region, and shortly thereafter, followed up by a call coordinating a, a listening exercise in Southern Africa, all the while on live communications to our corporate headquarters in London and in, in North Carolina. So it truly is a global job and, you know, internet and uh, virtual communications only facilitates that. Yeah. So you're not busy at all is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it used to be a job where I flew around the world um, wow. and pride myself on the number of miles I flew to, to meet people and to listen to them. And now it actually all happens through the, uh, you know, the virtual miles that occur on the internet. So, yeah. That's pretty fantastic. You have done a lot of work in the battle, you know, against HIV truly. So I imagine that you have some thoughts and some opinions about, you know, today what we're dealing with as far as the COVID crisis. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. What do you think that's revealed about our healthcare system here in the U.S.? And if there's anything that you feel we can do better to strengthen that? Yeah, there's so many commentaries about COVID, COVID-19, about uh, novel coronavirus, and the allegories and lessons from HIV and AIDS. You know, I think of HIV and AIDS as the last great viral pandemic, and there should be lots of lessons from that. If I just kind of bring it forward to 2020, novel coronavirus has taught us the incredible capacity of modern medical science. 
I mean, this virus was isolated and its full genetic sequence was published and available in the public domain just, I think, three to four weeks after the first description of the virus reported to the Chinese CDC. Unbelievable progress, unbelievable transparency and democratization of that scientific knowledge, which led to very rapid development of diagnostics and the, the early stages of therapeutic development for the virus. So it says that our capacity to do things really rapidly was immense. We now have something in the range of 300 registered clinical trials for COVID-19. We have 100 or more candidate vaccines in development. We have several dozen therapeutics that are in early phase development. All of this, not even one year after the description of the first cases in, in, in Wuhan. So science capacity has been incredible and I think is and should continue to be our magnetic north as we think about what is the value and meaning of biomedical science. But I think COVID-19 has also pointed out a lot of our weaknesses as a biomedical community, as a public health community, as a human rights community, whether it's in you know, the implementation of best practice public health interventions and just witness the, the you know, ongoing saga of mask wearing in the United States or social and physical distancing. That is an example of how and the challenges of leveraging what we know in the biomedical science space into the public health and public life space. I think one of the most poignant lessons is how fragile that entire system is and how dependent it is on strong leadership from, from government officials. And one just needs to look across the globe and look at the differences in governmental responses to this public health crisis, vastly different in different countries. And I'm embarrassed to say as an American passport carrier that I think our country is, has done among the worst in our public health response, despite the fact that we have one of the wealthiest economies in the world. So I, I think it says that there's a lot to be, to be learned from this, not just as an exercise, but as a matter of saving countless hundreds of thousands of people's lives. Absolutely. And thank you for framing that up in the way that you did, you know, initially in answering that question, because I think that on a continuous basis as a society, right, we're bombarded with a lot of different opinions and, and facts, right, about what's happening with COVID. But the way that you framed the positive, right, in the very beginning of, of how quickly the response happened and how quickly science kicked in, that, that's reassuring because we don't always get the positive news, right? It can sometimes feel like very dooming and that we're completely off. But, you know, I appreciate that little, that gem that you shared. So you're a wealth of knowledge and that this is fantastic. You're learning a lot just in speaking with you. And, you know, we're a teaching company, right? And we love to fill any knowledge gaps. Is there any topic that you would like to educate us on that you think everyone ought to know? Yeah, th thanks for that opportunity. You know, it's, it's always good to reflect about gaps and unmet needs, how to make the world a better place. I think that the HIV journey, the saga of science and medicine and policy and human rights and HIV, I think is a sober learning book, a textbook for thinking about COVID and thinking about the next pandemic. I think that one of the things that is often not really thought about much is the interconnectedness of all of these things. That the distance between discovery in a basic science lab 
what happens in the clinic, what happens in therapeutics, what happens at the governmental level, and what happens in a in a social, racial, or judicial justice environment is very short. I think that COVID again has pointed this out that there is a real challenge, an unmet need in the way that we scientists talk. David Sedaris wrote a funny book about, you know, someday I'll I'll talk good one day. And I think that scientists need to learn how to talk to people who are not scientists, that doctors need to talk, to, learn how to talk to people who are not doctors, for example. But we also need to understand that words matter. And those words, whether it's how we talk, but it's also how we frame things, has a, a social justice and human rights component to it. That the words we choose can stigmatize people in a way that prevents them from seeking care, that might, in fact, make the public health aspects of transmission of disease worse. And we saw this in the early days of AIDS. We still continue to see the the anti-scientific criminalization of people living with HIV around the world, including the United States. And the same is happening today with COVID, whether one wants to call it the China virus or Kung flu, which is a blatantly anti-scientific, anti-Asian, racist characterization that, again, makes it difficult for segments of the population to access care, only increases racial and social injustice, both in our country and around the world. So the interconnectedness of science and medicine and policy and human rights are, in fact, very intimately conjoined. And therefore, there's opportunities for all of us, independent of what our diplomas may say, and independent of our career stage, to play an important role in trying to move that needle and to improve the dialogue around these, these important points. I 100% agree with that. And, you know, I imagine, you know, with our audience right now, students, early healthcare professionals, if they're listening to you now in, in the same manner that I'm listening to you and they're early on in their career and perhaps they're interested in doing work with HIV or COVID, you know, trying to meet the challenges of the moment. What's the advice that you would give to those, those students or early healthcare professionals who are, you know, trying to get in there and do the work? Yeah. So again, an immensely important and wonderful question, advice seeking from a, a, an early career person to an old grizzled pandemic survivor. <laughs> I think one is very importantly is be interested and good at what you do, right? Learn to be a good doctor or a nurse, right? Because without that, your skill set becomes a little less important. But beyond that, I think it gets to be in a bit more of the warm, fuzzy kumbaya part of this is find the things that you're committed to, have something that you believe in, and be an advocate, if not activist, for those things. Because with that, I think, again, magic happens. If you're, if you're committed and you're technically skilled at something, but you're committed to actually delivering what that thing might be, then you'll go miles and you'll go places that you never expected to be. I think the last one, though, it kind of almost goes, takes us right back to where we started, is to always stay curious because curiosity helps you find innovation on one hand, perhaps to invent things. This is an, kind of an interesting time to have this conversation because one of my colleagues from graduate school and, and, and my postdoctoral period won the Nobel Prize last week. Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize for her discoveries in CRISPR. CRISPR was discovered because she was looking at things that other people really weren't that interested in, and she looked at them in a way that was innovative and different because she was curious. 
And that curiosity, I think, is an important foundational aspect to everything we do, both in one's academic career, professional career, and, and personal life. Wow. Congratulations to her. And thank you for that. I'm, I'm feeling very motivated just in hearing that. That was a fantastic response. I appreciate you, Dr. Young. Thank you so much for imparting us with all of this knowledge. Thank you for your work in the HIV community. And, and thank you just for joining today and, and talking to us. Well, thank you, John. It was a distinct pleasure to, to join you today. Oh, thank you. And I'm Jana Emil. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.